And the freedom point is the point where the value of your company, the after-tax proceeds of you selling your company, would generate a nest egg large enough that you could live comfortably for the rest of your life. And when you reach that, that is a point at which you may want to pull up and say, am I willing to risk financial freedom effectively for the next tranche of growth? Because for some people, we're just myopically focused on growing our top line, growing our top line. But in actual fact, we've well crested the freedom point. And what we yearn for is not the next zero in our bank account. It's that sense of being completely liberated, completely free. Welcome to the Become a Media Maven podcast. Today, I am speaking to John Warlow. Years ago, I read John's book, Built to Sell. He does have a new one out called The Art of Selling Your Business. And I have to tell you, when I read Built to Sell, I was not thinking of selling my business. It wasn't even a thought that crossed my mind. Like I didn't even think it was a possibility. I just started my business to to make money and make my own schedule. But Built to Sell is one of those books that even if, again, selling your business isn't even a thought, you still have to read it because it's about how to build a successful business. And I feel like he is going to open up the minds of so many listeners in this episode. And if you have thought of selling your business, if you did start your business to eventually sell it, he is sharing so much wisdom, so many things that we've never talked about before here on the podcast. And you are going to get so much value out of it. Everything from When's the right time to sell your business? And FYI, he said right now, by the way, (laughs) because of interest rates that um, the acquirers can get. So right now is a good time if you're considering it. How to communicate the potential sale with your employees as you're going through the process, mistakes business owners make, how to negotiate the whole gamut. It's a great episode if you are a business owner. And again, it doesn't matter how big or small your business is. This will work for anybody. So here's my interview with John Warlow. Ever wonder how some people seem to get a ton of media coverage and you don't? Welcome to Become a Media Maven, where TV reporter, host, and news contributor Christina Nicholson shares years of media experience to help you get the media attention you and your business deserve. And now, to help you master your media coverage, Christina Nicholson. John, thank you so much for joining me on the Become a Media Maven podcast. (laughs) Thanks for having me, Christina. I'm so excited to chat with you. I read your book, Built to Sell, years ago before I even thought of the possibility of selling my business. And I honestly feel like even if you're not even there yet in your mindset, it's a good business book, period, just to build your business, even if you're not even thinking of selling it. Absolutely. I mean, I think you know the, the best businesses start with the end in mind. So I think you make different decisions when the goal is to build something that can thrive without you. I think of it a little bit like parents. I mean, like I can tell by your video, your mom. And, <laughs> you know, for a lot of us parents, we have the aspiration that our kids will somehow leave the basement and become successful functioning without us. And I think if you take the same attitude to your business as you do parenting and you say, instead of chasing a revenue goal or a, you know, a profitability goal, is you say, my main goal is to nurture this little child called my business 
and and bring it into the world so that it can one day stand on its own two feet without me. And that's a big head scratcher for a lot of business owners who think about, well, I got to charge more, more for my time, or I got to find more customers, or I got to win. All those things are important, but I think if you have that overriding vision is my goal is to get them out of the basement into the world, it just changes the kinds of projects you take on, the way you approach everything in your company. I feel like I started with the wrong mindset and so many other people are starting with the wrong mindset because they're not thinking of that end goal. They're just thinking, I want to make money and make my own schedule. And and this is super helpful. You also have um, a new book called The Art of Selling Your Business. And how did you become this selling your business expert? Like this really is your jam. How did it all come about? By mistake. No, I mean, I, I, I was... Uh, I had a, a marketing services business. We were in quantitative market research and I built it up. I think we were about maybe 5 million in revenue and we had great clients. I mean, we had Microsoft and Bank of America, and JP Morgan. I mean, like really, really top drawer clients. And in my mind, I thought, oh, well, someone's going to want to buy my company for our client list. And so I went, you know, I reached a point where we wanted to change and, and, and move. And so I decided, okay, I'm going to sell my company. I went to see this guy named Perry Mealy. Perry is an M&A guy in Toronto. And, and he said, sure, come on down. And I go in and, and I said, so what do you think it's worth? What do you think it's worth? And I was all curious. And, and he says, you know, I, I got to ask you a couple of questions first uh, before I can give you a valuation. And I said, sure. Okay. So question number one, you do market research, right? So who does the research? And I'm like, oh, those are my research guys. And he's like, well... Okay, but you know, you're doing a project for Bank of America. You tell me that you're not involved in the research. And I'm I'm like, okay, sure. I I'm part of the research. And then he says, All right, who does the selling? And I'm like, Oh, those are my sales guys. And he says, So American Express calls you and you're not picking up the phone? Like it's your sales guys, you're sure? And I was like, All right, <laughs> sure, okay, fine. I had to get involved in the selling too. And he said, Okay, so let me get this straight. You've got a market research business while well, you do the research and you do the selling. And I'm like, yeah, I guess so. And he's like, yeah, well, I can't sell your company. It's worthless. There's nothing to sell. It's you. And it just felt like being told that your baby is the ugliest in the maternity ward. It was <laughs> horrible, <laughs> horrible. Because again, I walked into that meeting thinking, man, I've got this amazing asset, right? Anyways, long story short, I spent three or four years transitioning that company uh, based a lot actually on what Perry showed me into creating a more of a subscription-based company, uh, a little bit like a Bloomberg or a Thomson Reuters, ver small version of that. And anyway, we, we were ultimately acquired by a publicly traded company. The, the story end, had a happy ending. But to answer your question, that's how I started to, to sort of focus on this idea of like, why are business owners oftentimes, why are we, we not thinking about what will make our company valuable in the eyes of, of an acquirer? So. I love that. And we're going to learn that today. But first things first, how do business owners know when it is the right time to sell their business? Like I'm assuming there are things that not just professionally that go through their mind, but personally where they're at personally and how they're feeling. So how do you know when it's the right time to say, hey, maybe I should sell this thing? Well, you know, right now is a great time. Uh, right now, we have interest rates that are absolutely rock bottom. The pandemic has caused the Fed to lower interest rates to emergency levels. And why that matters to business owners is because the natural acquirer for most businesses of the size I think we're talking about today, Christina, are going to be a private equity group. And they finance their deals based on bank debt. And now that bank debt is virtually free, it enables them to get a 
positive return on their investment very quickly. So it's a great time. I think another way to answer your question relates more to something we call the freedom point. And the freedom point is the point where the value of your company, the after-tax proceeds of you selling your company, would generate a nest egg large enough that you could live comfortably for the rest of your life. And when you reach that, that is a point at which you may want to pull up and say, am I willing to risk financial freedom effectively for the next tranche of growth? Because for some people, we're just myopically focused on growing our top line, growing our top line. But in actual fact, we've well crested the freedom point. And what we yearn for is not the next zero in our bank account. It's that sense of being completely liberated, completely free. I remember I just did a podcast episode with a guy named Rob Walling. He built a great little company. Um, have you ever seen it? It's called Drip. Do you know I've heard Drip? of it. Yeah. I've heard of it. Yes. They just got acquired by Lead Pages. They're a marketing okay. services yes. uh, solution. It's a software company, software as a service business. And he built it up to a, a dozen employees or so and about $2 million of revenue. When he started to learn about what software companies are being valued at, and he was hearing numbers of, of like seven, eight, nine mm -hmm. times revenue. And at one point, he kind of pulled up and said, wait a minute, we've got $2 million of revenue. And and I could get seven times. I mean, that's enough money for me to live for the rest of my life. What, like, what am I doing? And he chose to sell the business, even though it was just a dozen employees. And so I think we all reach that freedom point at different times. But when we do, I think it's worth just pulling up and saying, you know, am I willing to risk that freedom for something I may not necessarily want or value? Now you 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 mentioned numbers a little bit. Is there any business that is too small to sell? Like people will say, "Oh, well, I only make five hundred thousand in revenue a year, so nobody's going to want to buy my business." Is that the case? No, there are three types of of buyers, and there's a buyer for virtually every business, I think. So the very smallest companies are usually acquired by individual investors, and individual investors are motivated uh, generally to have a job. So they're leaving a corporate job and they're saying, hey, I want to have a job, oftentimes in a city that they love. So in your town, I'm sure this happens all the time where people are <laughs> in you know, North Dakota and they're like, wow, I'd love to be in South Florida. Let me buy a business in South Florida because that's what I want to do. And so I don't want to start a business. I don't know anything about starting a business, but I really want to start or I want to buy a company. And right now the SBA in the United States, Small Business Administration is, is very keen to finance those deals. And so oftentimes small businesses are sold to individuals who want a job effectively. And so your location, the industry you're in, if you're in a very sexy industry, if you do, you know, like whitewater rafting trips or mountain biking guiding or like something that people would have a lifestyle benefit to, that's a sellable company because somebody is sitting in Duluth, Minnesota right now and saying, I would love to be in, in, uh, uh, you know, in, in Florida and, you know, teaching people how to kayak as an example. So yeah, I don't, I don't think very small businesses, uh, I should say in a more positive way, very small businesses are sellable. It's just, you need to know who the natural acquirer is. And how do you do that? I mean, how do you let people know, Hey, I'm interested in selling my business without looking desperate or without looking like you don't know what the hell this process entails? Yeah. First of all, I think selling a company is a who problem, not a how problem. So what I mean by that is, is I would not 
sell a company without hiring an M&A professional, or if you have a smaller company, a business broker, meaning this is something that they do all the time. That's not my profession, by the way, so I'm, I'm not saying that in a, in a self-serving way. I'm saying that this is what they do. Like you wouldn't sell your home without a real estate agent in the same way. That's their job is to, is to identify people who would want to buy your company. Now, that doesn't mean to say that you can't lubricate the process or improve their likelihood to identify buyers. And I think the secret here uh, is to use the word partnership because you're absolutely right. If you, if you rock up to a potential buyer and say, Hey, you know, would you like to buy my business? You're going to look desperate and it's going to be a, a terrible outcome. Whereas if you go to a potential acquirer and say, Hey, I'd like to talk about maybe doing some sort of strategic partnership that gives you plausible deniability that you're not necessarily interested in kind of hitting the eject button that you Jeff, you definitely want. And oftentimes strategic partnerships will, will kind of blossom into acquisition conversations. I'll give you an example. Stephanie Breedlove, um, is a woman that I interviewed for the book. She built a company called Breedlove and associates. They did payroll for parents who had a nanny to pay. Right, so if you if you have a nanny to pay, all the government pay, you know paperwork is really annoying. Yet, if you turn it over to ADP or Paychex, they kind of turn their nose down at you, look down their nose at you, and say, "Why would I, you know, like I'm not going to do payroll for one person?" So she said, "Why don't we create a whole company doing payroll for par parents who have a nanny?" So she built it up over a 25 year period to nine million dollars of revenue. She was about 10,000 customers. And then she looked out in the universe and said, okay, who should buy my company? Who would be the most likely to buy my company? And she identified care.com. Have you ever used care.com? I haven't, but I'm familiar. Okay, so plug in your zip code and it'll serve up a group of babysitters in your local market that parents have rated with a star rating so you can feel confident. So Care, at the time that Breedlove approached her, had 7 million subscribers. Wow. And so she said... Well, hold on a second. If if like one percent of the seven million bought my payroll service, that's like seventy thousand customers. We're we're over here at nine million in revenue with ten thousand customers, and so instead of going to them and saying, "Hey, would you like to buy my company?" she went to Care.com and said, "I'd like to talk about a, a partnership," and it started at the marketing manager level, where she said, "Hey, why don't we just share some information about hiring best practices with your for you on your website." Well, she daisy chained the conversation with the marketing manager to the director of marketing, to the VP of marketing, to the president of the company, at which time the president turned around and said, Stephanie, we should buy your company. They bought Stephanie Breedlove's company for $54 million, which oh is an outlandish <laughs> outcome for a $9 million business. And that's in The Art of Selling Your Business? That story is, yeah. Okay. I, I got to read that. That's amazing. That's such a good story. That And I love the strategic partnership approach and just kind of that's like the foot in the door and then you you grow from there. Exactly right. Yeah, most people think like selling a business is like this spectacular event that happens in the universe. And <laughs> it's actually much more common that you sell your company to a company you already know. In many cases, that you're already doing business with. And that's, you know, the Stephanie Breedlove story uh, reinforces that. Very cool. What what mistakes are business owners making when they're just getting their feet wet with the prospect of selling their business? I mean, one of the most common is is answering a relatively innocuous sounding question, which is what which is like, Christina, what do you want for your company? Mm. And the the problem with answering that is is you could take 
answering that in two different ways, right? You could give some crazy outlandish number so that you don't sort of undermine yourself. But by doing that, in many cases, the acquirer is going to walk away before they even get to know your company. They're going to go, Christina, that lady is a whack job. I have no clue. <laughs> they already say is. that, John. <laughs> <laughs> Equally, if you were to put out some sort of modest or more reasonable number, they're going to say, great. I don't have to buy it for a penny more than that. Effectively, what you're going to do is negotiate yourself. You're putting a ceiling onto which your company will ever sell. I'll give you the, give you an example of, of how this, this plays out in real life. A guy named Chris Jones uh, built a company called Pepper Jam. They, they're in like affiliate marketing software. Mm -hmm. And Chris got a call from a guy named Michael Rubin, who's this sort of unicorn, billion-dollar guy who sold a company to PayPal, massive sort of technology success. And Rubin said to Jones, look, why don't you come to my office and Tell me a little bit more about what you're doing with Pepper Jam. So Chris Jones goes down to see Ruben thinking this is going to be just a kind of a one-on-one a, a -on -one with a tech luminary. And, and he, in he walks into Ruben's office, but Ruben's not alone. He is flanked by his chief technology, or his chief uh, legal counsel and his head uh, of finance. And he says to Chris, without even exchanging pleasantries, okay, what do you want for Pepper Jam? And Chris is like, "What do you mean? What do I want for Pepper Jam? I, like, I thought I was coming here for a, a you know, a cup of coffee." Or what, he says, "Chris, what do you want for your business?" And Jones, being felt like being put on the spot with all the eyes like kind of radaring into him, just kind of blurted out his number. And Ruben, without even acknowledging the number, turns to his CFO and says, "All right, I think we can get a deal done." What he was communicating to the CFO was, "Don't pay a penny more." than the number Ruben just uttered, uh, uh, Jones just uttered. So I asked Chris after the fact, and, and I interviewed him, I said, like, what would you do differently if you had that conversation over again? And he said, I would never blurt out my number uh, because by doing so, I put a ceiling onto which I would ever sell my company. And so I think, look, if you get that question, you're going to want to defer it and say, look, I'm a, I'm a reasonable business owner. I'd be happy to entertain any offer you think would be reasonable. And plow on because there is almost no way you can answer that question without essentially putting yourself in a box. Now, this is going to be a loaded question because I know a whole lot goes into it, but how do you know what that number is? How do you know what your business is worth? Yeah. I mean, look, there's all kinds of valuation techniques that you can use. Uh, one is called book value, which essentially you're, you're adding up the cost of all of your assets and that's usually the lowest valuation you could offer or you could get. Another one is called comparables, which is where you look at other companies like yours. But the, the problem with that is you often will look at publicly traded companies and you say, okay, I have a marketing services business. So I'm going to, I'm going to look at what Omnicom is trading at or what, what, you know, some massive holding company. And generally small businesses trade at totally different multiples than do publicly traded companies. The third way to sort of value your business is, is what they call discounted cash flow, which is basically looking at the future cash flow that you are expected to generate and discounting it back to today's terms. And the shortcut way that people do that is looking at a multiple of profit. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, all three of those are really just very loose estimates of what your company's worth. The, 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 in the book, I read a, a story about a guy named Rob Ryman. He was, um, Ryman was a, uh, one of the sort of pioneers in the minimalist art genre. Back in the 1960s, there was this whole genre where, you know, art was considered to be, uh, you know, 
very minimal start was considered to be very desirable. And he, he painted a picture, I'm using air quotes, picture called Bridge. And it, it is literally a white square on a white piece of canvas. It, it looks like, at best, a high school like cafeteria ceiling tile. There's nothing. <laughs> you can see a little French fry grease on the top. Like it's like there's nothing to it. And yet he sold bridge this white box on a white piece of canvas for more than 20 million dollars at a christie's auction i mean the mind boggles that someone would be willing to pay for that but that's i mean i'm a neanderthal it means nothing to me at all i i wouldn't pay more than you know the cost of a ceiling tile but but i'm not a like i'm not a i'm not a minimalist art aficionado that's not my thing so for somebody out there your company will be worth more than it is in some arbitrary valuation technique. So again, it goes back to don't put some artificial ceiling on your number. Let the market, let the acquirers come to you with what they think your company is worth and then negotiate from there. And what do you tell your team during this process as you're chatting with people who are going to potentially acquire your business? I mean, because you don't want to blindside them, but you don't want to scare them if it's not going to happen. So how open and honest are you with your team about the process? This is a hotly, hotly debate. <laughs> it's, it's, it's interesting because it's also one of the, one of the, the un, uh, unnatural points where what is the right thing to do is also mm-hmm. strategically all, uh, very much the wrong thing to do. So, so the, the morally biblical right thing to do is to tell your employees, right? I mean, they're the ones who have brought you to this point. In many cases, they, you know, they're your family members. You feel like they're your friends and you feel like a, like a, like a lover sneaking around with some, <laughs> you're cheating on them. Right. You're cheating on them, right? Like it's a horrible, horrible feeling. Yet strategically, the worst thing you can possibly do is to tell your employees. Because what do employees do? First of all, they get nervous, right? They think, oh my gosh, my company's going to be sold. Uh, They brush up their LinkedIn profile and then they try to monetize the experience they have by using their experience to get a job with one of your competitors, right? They're like, okay, Christina's selling, so I'm a great marketing person, so who else can I go to that has the same company that Christina does? And it's going to be your competitors. And as a result of that, competitors find out, suppliers find out. Ultimately, it just undermines your leverage in a negotiation when too many people find out. So so I think you separate your universe into the rank and file employees, and if you have one or two managers, and the managers probably need to find out. The only other option I think you have, and I've seen work reasonably well, is is talk to your employees about the idea that you are thinking of raising money or bringing on an investor as opposed to selling your company. I'm reminded of of the story of Arik Levy. Arik Levy built a a great business called Luxor One. And when he went to sell it, he he chose to tell his employees, look, we're we're looking at building out a, we're looking at attracting investors and, and getting some investors. And in the end, he got five offers, three of which were for investing in his business, but two of them were acquisition offers. He accepted one of the acquisition offers and then had plausible deniability with his employees. He said, look, we were looking for invest, an investor, but it turns out that the, the most natural investor wants to buy 100% of the shares, not just a portion of them. So that's a different way you can do it that justifies why all these people are kind of combing through your numbers without necessarily feeling like you're, you're telling the world you're for sale. 
You used the the real estate example, like hire a real estate agent if you're selling your house. Speaking of real estate, and I know it's similar in South Florida as it is there in Toronto, John, where if somebody wants to buy a house right now, you have to come with at least asking price and all cash to get it. And it almost always leads to a bidding war. Could that happen when you sell a business? How can you even create that demand so you get as much money as possible? Yeah, absolutely. And and I think that is in essence what you want to do is you want to create a marketplace for your business. And it comes back to something we were talking about earlier, this idea that there are three types of buyers. There's individual investors, private equity groups, and strategic investors. Most business owners say, oh, I want to sell to a strategic, right? But there are only a finite number of strategics. And what you want is competitive tension. Like you want lots of people looking at your company. And, and what most people do is they put themselves in a box and say, oh, I only want to sell to a strategic. And they are, therefore, they ultimately get, in many cases, lured into what's called a proprietary deal, which is where one acquirer is negotiating to buy your business. And when they know there's no other competitors at the table, they usually lower the price and they do something called retrading, which be, means that after diligence, after you've agreed to a price, you've essentially gotten engaged in a marital way, you effectively, they lower the price on you. And that's called retrading because they know you don't have a competitive offer. And so what you want to do is get as many potential offers as possible. And, and the way to do that is to stay open to individual investors, private equity groups, and strategics. I'm reminded of, a, of, a, of, of just the kind of statistics that I think might be helpful for your listeners. I just did an interview uh, with a guy named A.D. Pinar. He built a, a little company based in Cape Town, South Africa. And I was talking about a sale, and I said, how many people did you go to? How many people were on your long list? And he said, I started with a long list of more than 100 businesses, everyone wow. from, again, strategics to private equities and individual investors. And... And we lay that this kind of process out in the book, but basically you send out the the what's called a teaser or an anonymous teaser to a hundred or more companies. And that anonymous teaser doesn't reveal your name, but it gets them interested enough to sign a non-disclosure agreement. So in 80s case, it was a hundred different people on the long list. Uh, I think he had six people who sort of were seriously entertaining the idea of making an offer. And then he got two what are called letters of intent, which is a, essentially an engagement letter where you are, they're putting a price on your company. And that once you sign that letter of intent, you go through, they, you agree to a no shop, what's called a no shop clause, which means you won't negotiate with anybody else. Then there's due diligence and then you close the sale. So from, from 100, it went down to six pretty quickly. From six down to two letters of intent and then two letters of intent culminated in one transaction. So you need lots of people at the top of the funnel to get down to the sale of, of, of a successful business. Just wrapping up, John, is there anything else people should keep in mind when they're building a business to sell it? I mean, something that comes top of mind to me is patience because it sounds very sexy to like build a business and sell it for millions. Like you've shared some great examples. So people may just want to hurry and build it to sell it, but it doesn't always work that way. So I, I guess a lesson here is you have to be patient and it takes years to build a business to sell it for millions. I think that's absolutely great sage wisdom. And I would also argue that the other side is also important, meaning there comes a time 
when your business may be better off in someone else's hands. I, I'm reminded of a podcast I did. This goes back a couple of years, but I, I get on the, the podcast and the interviewer says, before even sort of like the welcome and the kind of preamble, he says, right, okay, Warlow, yeah, yeah, you're the douchebag who wrote Built to Sell. It just about fell off my chair. I'm like, what? I've never been called that before in my life. And he said, yeah, yeah, you're the guy who wrote the book that people should build to sell. And and he went on to like chastise me for this whole, you know, like the built to flip culture and how we should be building to last and we should, you know, not be. And, and I just, I was totally on my back foot. I didn't know how to react to his criticism and I did a terrible job at the time, but it, I, you know, I've since thought about it a lot since then and how much I disagree with that sentiment. Meaning I think as entrepreneurs, we, we, we do our business a wonderful service in the first 10 years, right? When there's a premium on creativity and problem solving and, and, and innovation. And then, and if we're lucky and we get our businesses up off the ground and it, and it is starting to kind of thrive, in many cases, we become an albatross and, and we are holding back the business. I, I'm reminded of a guy named Joey Redner I interviewed. He's, he built a company actually close to where you are, Christina, called Cigar City Brewing. Have you ever tried their beer? Uh, my husband probably has. He loves the local breweries. Okay. So they're, they're local in Tampa. They're not where you are, but they're in the same state. Oh, Tampa is huge for brewery, breweries. Huge. Yeah, well, it never used to be. So Redner, when he did the math and looked at craft breweries, they were very, very few. Like 10% of beer sold in America was craft, and only I think in Tampa was 2%. And so Redner's like, this is great. I can build this business. So he starts this company called Cigar City Brewery has to borrow 800 grand from his dad to create all the brewing capacity, right? Like it's a huge capital intensive business. So he borrows the money from his dad. Fantastic success. All the local bars in, in, in Tampa are selling it. So much so that he has to expand again. And so he goes to the SBA and takes on an even bigger loan. Now he's in a hawk to his dad and the SBA for money, but they expand again, more brewing capacity. And it goes all the way regionally in Florida. Now he's selling more and wider and it's just, Again, he runs out of brewing capacity. The third time, the bank says, sure, Joey, we'll lend you the money. Just sign here. And it's obviously yet another personal guarantee. And he said to me, look, I felt like I was the, the, the addicted gambler in mm -hmm. Las Vegas who just has won five consecutive hands. And the dealer's looking at them saying, put all your chips in the table again. He had won the game of entrepreneurship right? Like he had taken a chance. He had built a successful business. He had expanded a second time. And he said, I'm out. Like someone else can take the risk. I want to sell. And he ultimately did sell. He sell to a private equity group that's owned, that owns Oscar Blues, which is another craft beer and had a tremendous success, financial success, et cetera. And, and he's, he's, a, he's created a life that he dreams of, meaning, uh, you know, the freedom and financial freedom and so forth. And, and I think many entrepreneurs reach that point and, and they don't have the courage to say, you know what, I should give someone else a turn to run this company who maybe has more capital and is less sort of, uh, uh, concerned about, about taking on more and more risk. And so look, I, I absolutely agree that patience is important when building a business and, there's also a time that there probably is someone else out there willing to take your business to another level that you may not have the appetite to do. So when that happens, uh, I think it's worth thinking about. And some people 
sometimes their mindset just changes and they're just like, I don't want to do this anymore. Absolutely. And it, I, like, mean, I, don't, pandemic, I don't like the industry. I don't like the industry, but I think the pandemic has, has, has caused so many entrepreneurs to have that feeling, right? Like if they were in business back in nine 11, that was a huge shock to their system. Then the big, you know, the financial crisis, no eight or nine, another massive shock to the system. And now the pandemic is a third. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs are saying enough, uh, you know, like I can't stomach it anymore. And when that happens again, I think that's a very natural reaction. And, and, and I would just encourage people not to just walk away from their company. They may be surprised at the value they've created, uh, that someone be, would be willing to buy that business. And, uh, and I think it's a very natural feeling and it's okay. And if that, is the feeling that you you have um you may be sitting on an asset that someone would want to buy one last question you mentioned you know like and you get a business broker how do you find one that understands your industry or knows the kinds of people i mean how do i mean i feel like that's that's something you, you don't just google search and and pick the one with the best seo <laughs> <laughs> no, you don't. Look, I think in an ideal world, you would talk to other owners who have sold a company like yours and ask them who they used. I think that's that's great. I think what you've got to make sure, however, is if you're in an industry where there's just one or two natural acquirers, this doesn't happen very often, but if you're in an industry where there are one or two big companies that are buying all the small companies in that space, the broker who specializes in your industry is likely somewhat beholden to those buyers because he mm. or she knows that they've got to then go sell the next company to the same two or three buyers. And so they may end up not being able to push that hard for your deal. So you may be looking for someone who has a knowledge of your industry, um, but also appreciates the, the sort of secret sauce that you have and is willing to really fight for what you've created. So again, talk to, I think, other entrepreneurs who've sold their company and find out who they used. And I think that's probably a good start. I love that. I'm going to link to built to sell and the art of selling your business in the show notes for this episode. Again, even if you're not even thinking of selling your business right now, you have to read built to sell, um, because it will just help you build a successful business period. And then the art of selling your business that's on my to be read list to be read list. So excited about that one. John Warlow, anything else you want to add that I should have asked? No, I mean, I think this was fun and it was good to be with you. I think if folks want, you know, I talked about people like Stephanie Breedlove, Joey Redner. If folks want to learn more about people like that, I, I do a, a weekly podcast. So if you just go to builttosell.com, uh, folks can grab, I think the top right corner, it says free gifts. And if you opt in, provide an email address, we'll send you a new episode once a week. It's free. And you can just hear these stories of business owners who've sold their company. These are amazing stories. I love it. Thank you so much, John. Thanks, Christina. Make sure you check out John's podcast, Built to Sell, and don't forget to buy his books, not just Built to Sell, but The Art of Selling Your Business. I am linking to those books in the show notes of this episode so you can find out more about John and his amazing expertise. So excited to have him on to chat about a topic that we haven't talked about here on the podcast. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, tell your friends what's happening over here on the Become a Media Maven podcast. Tap that subscribe button and leave me a rating or a review. And remember, you can always see us as we record these episodes on my YouTube channel. And you should, I hope you watch this one, because John has a beautiful background calling in from his home in Toronto, Canada.
Thanks again for listening. I will see you again next week on another episode of Become a Media Maven.